acknowledge and identify. And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Welcome, human. Logan! I am ready for you. How many of you want this to be lasting? I never heard of a Sandman running, ever. There is no sanctuary. Fish, plankton, sea greens, and protein from the sea. You don't have to die. Well, no one has to die at 30. You can live. Live. You are terminated, runner. Disenfranchised by the modern comics industry, producer Paul Spitaro, Dr. Bill Robinson, and Scott H. Gardner, overwhelming, am I not? Now, fly the time stream in a never-ending quest to rediscover and reconnect with that unique brand of fun and excitement that can only truly be found in good old-fashioned, randomly selected comic book back issues. Journey with them now. Back. Back to the bin. Retrogram complete. Proceed 03303. Hello and welcome to Back to the Bins. My name is Scott Gardner and joining me as always are my very good buddies, Dr. Bill Robinson. That's Bill69. To you <laughs> and producer Paul Spataro. I don't trust him. He brought us in here. I don't know what what he's doing. I don't know where he comes from. Looks like a Sandman to me. <laughs> Bill, what are you doing with that black and white shirt on? <laughs> you know, it, it's funny you mentioned that because as I was uh, getting dressed today and uh, and picking out my my daily attire, it occurs to me that I don't have any Logan's Run T-shirts, and that's just that makes me sad. I need to find a Logan's Run T-shirt. I have seen a T-shirt that's you know just the black with the gray stripe through the middle, like the Sandman wear. I always thought that one would be kind of cool. It'd be kind of a deep reference for you know for anybody that actually got it. I would need the uh, like the, the muscles built into it. <laughs> I, I don't want a pear-shaped Sandman shirt. <laughs> so, yes, we are continuing our coverage of Logan's Run from Marvel Comics. And uh, thank you, Dr. Bill, for joining us on this. Now, have you read the first two issues to be, to be up to speed to where we are in this one? Yes. Well, I mean, it was just an adaptation of the movie, so I mean, I was familiar with it already. Now, have you read this before? No, I had not read this before. Cool. All right, I'd be very interested to uh, to get your thoughts on that when we get well, to the. Well, to before the we before we get on to this book, why don't we? Uh, what's your familiarity with the movie, Bill? Oh, I saw it like uh, like a CBS TV movie. Uh, well, I mean, I I didn't see it in the theaters. I, you know, I saw it on TV. I guess that would have been sometime in the. 70s or 80s? When did the movie come out again? Was it like 70? 76, yes. 76. So it was probably a few years later on network shows that I, you know, on, well, back then we didn't have cable. So, so yeah, that, 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 that was the first time. So I was pretty young when I saw it and I was kind of confused. <laughs> I mean, I probably should watch it again, although I'm getting the gist of it, you know. I, I remember Farrah Fawcett being in it. Yeah, who doesn't? <laughs> so have you not seen it again since yeah. then? I might have glanced at it once or twice. I remember watching the show, the TV show, and that everybody was different and how I was confused by that. Right. As a as, as a young and go, wait, that's not the same people. That's not a guy with an English accent. What? I'm <laughs> so, so confused. So it's funny because I, I don't know I can't remember if Bill uh, if uh, excuse me if Paul and I talked about this when we started this or not but I, I discovered Logan's Run much the same way as far as the the film version is when it aired on network television and didn't realize for years how much racier the film actually is than the televised version it wasn't until it came out you know and I, and I got it on video when it first came out on video that i realized oh god you know there's there's naked scenes and you what? know there's a lot. what oh yeah <laughs> i've never seen that version yeah exactly Some, so somebody's gonna be seeking this out <laughs> you need to revisit this movie because oh yeah because i remember the first time well you know what it was I, i'm pretty sure it was when uh i was working for uh 
in, when I still lived in New York, I was working for a Wegmans uh, in their video department. And we were always looking for movies that we could play, you know, in the monitors and everything. Oh, and I remember so you popping play this? <laughs> yeah, thinking it was a very innocuous movie. I mean, I, I, if somebody had asked me, I'd have probably said it was rated G, you know, because I, I always equated it with like Planet of the Apes, which is a G-rated movie. And then all yeah, of a sudden, there's like Charles and Heston butt in that one. Yeah, exactly. But you know, and then all of a sudden, there's you know the the scene where. Uh, you know, Jessica takes her clothes off, and I'm like, "Whoa, wait a minute! I don't remember this." And then I realized that, oh, you know, I'd only ever seen the TV airing of it. I had never seen it uncut. You know, the theatrical version. So yeah, you need to you need to check that out. It's got some I, good stuff in it. I've always liked movies that have Richard Jordan in it, who plays Francis. Yes. Yeah, he's yeah, we, he, uh, Paul he, he was a great actor. I, I think he was very underappreciated. I liked him in *Raising Titanic*, which you know the story's kind of hokey. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it, it is now. But yeah, it, it, that you know, there's a thing that goes around Facebook like all the time. You know, asking you know, like, what are your guilty pleasure movies? And and Chris Honeywell and I had this discussion a long time ago. I've never really understood that whole thing about guilty pleasure because it's like, if I like it, why why is that a guilty pleasure? But that one, I guess, would probably fall in that realm of guilty pleasure because my logical brain knows it's not a very good movie, but I still like it anyway. So I guess that's the definition of guilty pleasure, right? Yeah, to me, that's – yeah, you know it's not good, but you like it anyway. That's a guilty pleasure. It's not that right. you actually feel guilty about liking it. No, right. it's just that, like people look at you and go, really? You like that movie? <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. Just like just like Xanadu, you know. <laughs> By the it's way, exactly. that, that is, that's available on HBO On Demand, so, Bill, we'll be getting to that. Okay. <laughs> Now, have you done? You haven't done Logan's Run as a as an Is It Jaws, have you? No, we haven't. Oh, we need to do that. All right, so let's go ahead and dive into this issue. We should do Logan's Run as a commentary. I'm trying to remember if Honeywell and I did that or not. You did, I know you we did cover it. I don't know if you did it as a commentary, but I do remember you guys covered it, and I had I was kind of in Bill's situation where I hadn't seen it for years, and after you covered it, I was so geared up that I wanted to see it again that I happened to be at Target and they happened to have the Blu-ray for five ninety nine and I was like, Yeah, I'm buying it. Mm. So you, you guys you guys <laughs> that you guys cost me five ninety nine. I wish that there had been some way that we could have gotten some sort of kickbacks for all the things over the years that people have, have told me, Yeah, I went out and bought this movie, comic, soundtrack, whatever, because you recommended it. I'm like that's awesome. I saw no no monetary you know, anything from that, but that's great. Yeah. Just just on Russell Bragg buying comics on the recommendation. Right. Yeah, exactly. He just he just bought Strange Adventures despite our lukewarm final thoughts about it. Oh really? Mm-hmm. That's what he, he messaged us. <laughs> I think he found it at a pretty good price on eBay if I read his message correctly. <laughs> So Logan's Run number three is the issue we're covering this time around. Uh, this was the uh, March 1977 cover dated issue. It was actually on sale, according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, on December 14th of 1976 for a mere 30 cents. Cover on this one, again, George Perez, uh, this time inked by Tom Palmer. And it's funny because the the cover here depicts uh, a scene in the film where the uh, I forget what this thing is called but this this laser death trap is uh, is basically what it is oh that was the like the medical thing right and uh, you've got doc and Logan battling on a table as lasers are zapping all around them and then in the background you've got Jessica and Holly battling each other and there's a a little blurb on it that says trapped in the layer of laser death which is kind of fun but I, I was actually looking at the picture and thinking that uh, I used to be a Sandman till I took a laser to the knee might actually be a, a better because <laughs> that looks like a laser zapping Logan right in the knee, which would be uh, ouch. But it's funny, you know, in, in reevaluating this cover for the review, I actually changed my mind about something because you and I, Paul, discussed briefly, you know, the covers that we liked and, and disliked and whatever through the series and through the adaptation. And I was thinking ahead to this issue. I was going to comment that this is my least favorite cover of the adaptation. But in looking at it again, 
Um, and I think it's largely because it's inked by Tom Palmer, who's one of my favorite inkers. I actually like this cover a lot, and I didn't think that I used to, so I've had to reevaluate. I now think last issue's cover, number two's cover, is actually my, my least favorite of the adaptation covers, but my least favorite cover of the whole series is actually in the post-adaptation stuff, so we'll cover that later. But uh, what, do you, what do you guys think of the cover? I'm just taking a quick look. Last cover was the one with the children, and my biggest problem was that I didn't like the way the children looked. Right. Uh, and I would say, <laughs> especially the, the one little elf-looking one that's jumping out, whatever. Uh, I don't want to get into it. We already discussed that at length. But I do like this cover. I think it's, you know, it, it's almost it's almost like standard George Perez issue, which is not meant to denigrate it. It's meant to say how good it is. I think I think it's really really sharp. I think Tom Palmer's inks are always sharp. Uh, my least favorite cover, and it's not for what it shows, but it's just the way Logan appears on it, is actually number six, the first the one that goes beyond the movie. Yep. His body just looks a little out of proportion in that one, and, and we'll get to that eventually. But of the adaptation, I would say my least favorite is number two, which I didn't realize we were going to actually have a which is your least favorite cover moment. <laughs> Well, I only only mention it because, like I say, I you know I was thinking about that last time when we were covering issue two. That uh, as much as I didn't like that cover, I was I was waiting to say that this was my least favorite one for number three. But in, like I say, at it again, no, I actually kind of do dig this cover quite a bit. So um, I think I mentioned this with Paul before that when I was rereading this, that I didn't remember the uh, from the movie. I, I don't remember these kids that were in like an underground oh, at yeah. all. In in, yep. in the movie, I just maybe that got cut with the version I saw. I don't know. No, that's that's a I won't say a big part of the movie, but that's that's definitely part of the movie where they go there. Well, it is kind of a big part of the movie because that's where. Well, I remember them uh, going into some underground area, but I don't remember all these crazy psychotic little kids going after them. <laughs> that's you know maybe not the kids are that that important, but the end of that scene where you know where they're in the cathedral area, that's where we see that Francis learns that something's definitely wrong with Logan because he sees him spare a runner and then he comes in and kills the runner himself. That's how the last ended. So that seems pretty important. I can't imagine that, you know, that that would have gotten cut from a, from a theater. Probably just don't remember. (laughs) Probably. Yeah. Uh, So this issue is uh, written once again by uh, David Anthony Kraft, uh, art as usual by uh, George Perez and Klaus Janssen. The story is entitled simply Sanctuary with an exclamation and a question mark. So it's like a... (laughs) But I have to say it every time, like like Quasimodo, Sanctuary! (laughs) (laughs) All right, synopsis as follows. In the 23rd century... Logan and Jessica are welcomed to New U-483 by a pretty blonde attendant named Holly 13. They have come directly from Cathedral to the first stop for a careful runner seeking to find the mysterious sanctuary. Holly 13, seeing the facial wound Logan sustained from the Cubs last issue, assumes he's come to have it healed, but Jessica asks to quit playing games and tells Holly that they're in a hurry, Logan is running, and that he needs a new face fast. This added dialogue makes clear the fact that Holly and Jessica already knew each other and that Jessica knows the shop is runner-friendly. Holly ushers them into the operations theater where they meet Doc. Missing is the scene where Logan questions Doc's age and the revelation that Doc is actually a red. Here, David Kraft's script cuts straight to Logan being put on the operating table and coerced to ask to be given dark hair by Holly while, out of hearing range, Doc scalds Jessica for bringing a Sandman to him. Jessica pleads Logan's case, and Doc agrees to give him a new face. But unbeknownst to Jessica, Doc later receives a mysterious phone call just prior to the operation. Shortly, after demonstrating the positive attributes of his makeover machine to Logan by healing the gash on the Sandman's forehead, Doc then switches gears and sets the miniature surgical lasers to maximum intensity, intending to slice our hero to pieces. Jessica attacks Doc and fights him for Logan's life, 
Holly then attacks her, while Doc observes Logan pull his weapon and take aim at the deadly mechanism. Doc shouts, I can't let him get out of the operating chamber alive, and charges at Logan, striking him and knocking him back into the room where he pins him against the operating table. Doc raises his hand to club Logan when he is suddenly struck in the back by his very own laser apparatus. Logan rolls free of the chamber as Doc is gruesomely sliced to death by repeated laser blasts. Jessica belts Holly, then she and Logan turn to flee the new you only to run smack into Francis Seven. Logan's friend and partner begs to know what's going on. He tells Logan that he's been following him. He's seen everything. And why did Logan let the runner go free in Cathedral? Holly, rousing from Jessica's blow, groans and sits up, momentarily drawing Francis's focus, and Logan takes advantage of this distraction to hit his friend with his pistol and then flees with Jessica, who confesses she's finally convinced of Logan's sincerity and agrees to take him to her rebel friends. Back in the shop, Francis climbs to his feet and just for a moment stands with Holly at the entrance to the makeover machine where she sobs for the dead and smoldering Doc. We then skip over a very adult scene from the film to somehow arrive, quote-unquote, behind the scenes of the city and descend into its depths. Jessica confesses to Logan that she'd actually been leading him into a death trap back at Arcade in the last issue, and she begs his forgiveness. Then suddenly the pair are stopped in their tracks by a blinding light and a group of angry rebels. They tell Logan that he sh never should have made it this far, having issued orders to Doc to kill them back in the new U. They also believe that Jessica is a traitor to their cause, having joined Logan and that she's condoning his actions in what they believe was Logan killing the runner in Cathedral. We actually saw that it was Francis that did that, not Logan, but the rebels don't know that. Instinctively, automatically, Logan reacts as he had been taught at the Sandman Academy and activates his transceiver. Just as it looks like the end of the run for Logan and Jessica, Holly arrives and exonerates him and Jessica in the death of Doc, says that Logan really is a runner, and tells of another Sandman that's pursuing him. She asks the group to help Logan seek sanctuary in the hopes that it will redeem Doc's death. The group elects to pass Logan through and wishes him luck. Logan tries to convince Jessica, who wants to come with him, to stay behind. He wants her to get to safety before they come. But this comment is overheard by the rebels and they suddenly realize that Logan has summoned the other Sandmen. One of the rebels raises her weapon to blast Logan and the entire wall of the secret base is then blown in and a squad of Sandmen pour through the opening, killing everyone in their path, including, sadly, Holly 13. Jessica, horrified, recoils from Logan. He sent for the Sandman. He sabotaged her entire group, set them up for slaughter. But Logan pleads his case that this is what Computer wanted him to do, but she has changed him, made him see beyond himself, and that summoning the Sandman was a mistake, a panicked reflex. As this goes on, a Sandman rushes in and takes aim at Jessica. Logan turns, shoots, and kills the other Sandman before he can squeeze off his shot. He and Jessica then flee, only to be confronted again by Francis Seven, this time on the opposite side of a wire fence separating them. Francis says to his friend that he hasn't told anyone yet and that it's not too late for Logan. If he just terminates Jessica, he can walk out with Francis and no one will ever have to know. Logan answers this with a blast from his energy gun that hits the fence and drives Francis back. He and Jessica flee again as Francis calls after them, swearing he'll get them both for this. He'll hunt them down and kill them both. Logan and Jessica run and descend further and further into the depths of the city's inner workings. Eventually, slogging through knee-deep water, the pair come to a door marked with a large glowing onk symbol, the gateway to sanctuary. Jessica removes her onk pendant and slips it into the keyhole. The door opens, but before they can go through, Logan dumps his transceiver into the water behind them, symbolically cutting the last ties to his former life. As the two explore this strange, seemingly forgotten world beneath their civilization, Francis, meantime, has reached the gateway. Recognizing the Ankh symbol as being the same as the object he took off the female runner in Cathedral, 
Francis realizes he too has a key. Eventually, he again catches up with the pair, and this time, there is very little pretense. Ignoring Logan's plea to remember their lifelong friendship, Francis fires and hits a big storage tank behind the runners, letting loose a massive deluge of water that sweeps everyone away. The rush of water thrusts Jessica and Logan into an adjoining chamber where Logan locks the door, then collapses, exhausted, on the grated floor. When he catches his breath and attempts to rise, he accidentally sets off a mechanism that causes the platform they're lying on to descend even further into the depths of the city, eventually coming to rest in a freezing, icy cavern where they are confronted by a strange, towering being of gleaming silver. Welcome, humans! Welcome to the awesome ice world of Box. I hope your stay is enjoyable, because it will be permanent. Next, Deadly Sanctuary. So actually, before we even start, <laughs> when we get to the first page, uh, I have my first note, is that there's a skip in the narrative here. And it's kind of interesting because uh, they fail to tell you in the comic why exactly are they going to New U-483, which there's a scene, essentially there's a scene missing. Because last issue ended with Francis killing the runner, and then this issue picks up immediately where Holly is welcoming Logan and Jessica into the new you shop. In the movie, there's a scene in between that that explains why Logan is going to the new you shop, and that's completely missing from this. You kind of pick it up in the dialogue a little bit, but it is never made clear exactly why they went there. You kind of have to infer that. Really? I, I must have retroactively put that scene in my head when I read the book because I didn't pick that up. I was just kind of like, oh, yeah, yeah, then they have to go to this place. And right. I guess I remembered enough of the movie that, that I didn't pick that up when I was reading. <laughs> Now you were dead on before, uh, Bill. That uh, Holly is uh, was the Farrah Fawcett. You said Farrah Fawcett was in the movie. That was that was yeah. the character that she played. Now they didn't have likeness rights uh, in this adaptation, but there's several uh, panels here where I think that she looks pretty close. I don't know that if you were reading this cold, no familiarity with the movie or whatever. I don't know that you would necessarily know that it was Farrah Fawcett. I don't, I don't know that she looks close enough to her that you'd go like, Oh my gosh, that's, that's based on Farrah Fawcett. But n when you do know it, I, I think that you can kind of spot it in a couple instances. Well, this is pre Charlie's angels, I believe. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't know. I think it's concurrent. I really think it's concurrent. Yeah. I don't know much about Charlie's angels other than that. She was on it. I couldn't tell you. Well, I, I, I mean, I do remember, you know, Back when Charlie's Angels was on and when, you know, her poster was out. I mean, she was definitely all the rage back then. I had the poster. Right. Okay, so when did the, when did Logan's Run come out again? 76? Hang on, and, I'll look at it. And up. I okay. seem to remember Charlie's Angels starting in 76. Cause you I, would be correct. Because it says it ran from September 22nd, 1976 to June 24th, 1981. So I'm thinking this. I'm thinking this predates her Charlie's Angels premiere. Yeah, if it came out the same year, yeah. So he was probably in the can. So was she like on the rise? Yeah, but she was. She was still kind of unknown at that time. Yeah, it says here, and her wiki says, Fawcett rose to international fame starring as private investigator Jill Monroe in the first season of the television series Charlie's Angels, 76 to 77. So this, I would imagine, was getting her exposure on her on her rise to stardom. So, yeah, that makes I th sense. I think her rise, you know, not that she didn't deserve it. I'm not trying to say that. But, I, you know, there, there are a lot of people who deserve it who are who remain unknowns. But I think the fact that she was married to Lee Majors did not hurt her any in her uh, initial introduction to Hollywood. I think that that helped just to get her the exposure, to get the roles. And then once she got it, you know, she skyrocketed. And she was, you know, there was there was a phenomena that was going on then. And she was the first one that I'm aware of that, you know, had a contract and just said, screw it, I'm not coming back. And then they replaced her with Cheryl Ladd. 
I mean, I, I kind of remember some of that, but, you know, being as young as I was, I, I remember it just kind of proliferally, you know, I wasn't quite of the age yet to be caught up in the, in the, the Vera fever. If I'd have been a couple years older, I probably would have gotten caught up in it, but I, I just kind of remember her, you know, being a, being a big star and everything, but not, not. I wasn't as into her, you know, for the same reasons as everybody else was at the time. Oh, she, she was actually she, on a couple episodes of um, the Six Million Dollar Man. Yeah, and I was trying to figure out if those predate Charlie's Angels or not, but I'm I'm not sure about that. But yeah, she uh, was on there. I think I want to say she was on there. A yes, couple it did of predate times. because it's from what it says it? 1974 to 78, Six Million Dollar Man. Four episodes as Farrah Fawcett Majors. Yeah, but I mean, her her episodes specifically did they predate? Because um, I mean, the the show predates Charlie's Angels, but do her appearances on the show predate her Charlie's Angels work? And that I don't know. Because I I've seen I was for a time I was doing a rewatch through Six Million Dollar Man, and I'm I forget where I stalled out. I need to pick that back up at some point, but I think I was in the second or third season, and I remember seeing her in an episode. I, I if I remember right, because I, I was often I was looking up different characters and different actors as they would appear, and I think I looked her up. And if I remember properly, I think she was on the show a couple of times, but she was playing different characters. I, I don't think she played any recurring character, although she was on the show more than once. I, I think she was on twice in '74 and twice in '76. Oh, okay. So she she did predate her. She uh, played in her first and last appearance. She played the same character, Major Kelly Wood. And then she played two other characters in the two appearances in between. Oh, characters all together for four appearances. Huh, that's interesting. Yeah. yeah. Now, do you think Doc in this looks a little old? And I, I don't mean old compared to the actor. I mean old compared to 30 years old. Because in the movie, a, a big deal is made about the fact that he has altered his own looks to look much younger than he actually, because Logan kind of questions him. Like, you know, he, I think he, I think he says, I thought you'd be a, I want to say he says, I think you'll, I thought you'd be a red, which means, you know, that's, that's as old as you can get in the society is being a red, which is like mid to late twenties. But there's a couple panels here with doc. Like I'm looking at the bottom of page six where he's making that screaming maniacal, crazy face the one where he has yeah. gil kane face yeah and that looks a lot older than 30 to me but i, I wondered what you guys thought hmm. comic book artists in general have a difficult time drawing youth well you know the you know the panel adds five to ten years so. <laughs> <laughs> like I'm, I'm picturing i'm looking at him and i don't know why but my mind is going to uh Wyatt Wingfoot, when he's supposed to be uh, Johnny's college roommate in the Fantastic Four. Yes, yeah, he does yeah. have that severe haircut. And he always looked in in to me the way he was drawn. He always looked like he was about thirty, and he's supposed to be a college kid. So he's yeah. supposed to be about nineteen, but he looks like he's like thirty. That's a good call because I was trying to think of who Doc reminded me of, and yeah, you nailed it. Because yeah, this this is Perez's. Um, Wyatt not, Wingfoot, yeah. Well, not to cast aspersions, but maybe Wyatt got held back. <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> why, why it was special. <laughs> now, we were talking before about comparisons, you know, with the with the movie or, you know, where, where the comic adaptation did things differently or in some cases actually improved the narrative. And there's a big one here for me in this one. So... In the prior issue, when Logan was fighting the Cubs, he got that nasty gash on his head. And I like here that they use that gash as the healing demonstration of Doc's machine. So Doc lays Logan down in the thing, zaps him in the head, heals it up to show that the machine can do that. I think that's awesome. That is so much better than in the movie where he just like wantonly lasers logan's chest and then 
you know, a, like a couple seconds go by and then he does the mist thing to heal him up real quick. I mean, I don't care how quick that healing process is. That's going to hurt. Ow. And it, yeah, that always seemed a little weird to me in the movie that, you know, that he would just do that. And Logan seems OK with it. So I like this much better because this shows how the machine functions without that awkwardness or whatever. So that you don't really know anything's amiss until doc actually sets the machine to actually try to kill him. So I thought that went a lot better. Now, did you notice there is a big old chunk of the movie that is excised from this adaptation, this chapter of the adaptation, Do you know where it is? I don't recall offhand in the film after all this goes down in the new you and doc gets killed and Francis corners them as they're trying to make their way out. Logan and Jessica are trying to make their way out. And then Logan decks uh, Francis and they run out in this adaptation. Then it skips to where they're kind of behind the scenes of the city and making their way into the bowels. But in the film, do you remember how they got there? I'm drawing a blank now. There's the love shop. Oh, yeah. Just that weird, like, slow-mo, really trippy sex scene, essentially. It's like it's like a big, like, group orgy. It's really weird because when they go into that, I mean, this, you know, much of this movie was filmed in a mall. And I don't know if it was specifically a shop in the mall or if it was a set, but that set, wherever it was filmed actually looks like it could be like in a mall like a clothing store <laughs> you know it was like like somebody put up a bunch of mirrors or it's really trippy and weird looking and as much as i love the film that that's one of those moments of the film that i, I always kind of cringe at a little bit because it has not aged well i don't know if it ever really looked all that good to begin with it's just really bizarre i think those scenes those, those scenes that type of scene was common in movies in the late 60s into the 70s. Right. And, yeah, they, they haven't aged well because it's just not it's just not something you see anymore. And they usually have some kind of, like, really generic uh, stoner music playing in the background in those scenes. Almost like, like something you'd expect to hear in a porn movie. Yeah, the, uh, the music in that scene in the movie and you know on the soundtrack and all it it doesn't sound like a porno necessarily but it's very electronic it's very experimental on goldsmith's part and you know as much as i i'm a huge goldsmith fan and i love the, the soundtrack to logan's run it's one of my favorite soundtracks but that's a track I always skip. I don't. I don't play it because it's just bizarre. It's just a bunch of nonsense, you know, uh, electronically, essentially. But that's kind of what the scene is. So it fits the scene, but out, away from the movie, it's it's something I, you know, it's it's not easy listening music. So, but so if they're going into the bowels of the city, wouldn't they have to go through the colon? <laughs> <laughs> but it's just it's funny that they go, you know, that that. I mean, I'm fine with them skipping the scene. It actually works much better for me. But then it does create a minor continuity gap just in the sense of how did they get there? You know, how did Jessica know where to go? You know, how did they reach this point? And that's really just glossed over. You just kind of it happens so fast. You don't really have time to think about that. Somehow they've managed to now get behind the scenes. So. I think it actually would have worked better if they had run deeper into the new you and wound up behind the scenes. Cause then it would have made more sense for why they ever went to the new you in the first place, because they knew it was like a secret portal into, you know, the, cause eventually they wind up at the, at the, I guess you'd call them the rebels, the rebel headquarters or the rebel hideout, which is deep within the, you know, the behind the scenes uh, bowels of the city. But again, you know, there's not really a, an explanation of how they got behind the scenes. So I think it would have worked better if instead of running out of the new you to get away from Francis, they ran like deeper into it and found like a, I don't know, like a hidden panel or, you know, a, a Scooby-Doo bookcase or something slid aside and let them in, you know, something like that. 
I think would have worked a little bit better because I mean that we do see that later anyway, that there are, you know, secret panels and, and secret passages and stuff that, you know, that they're able to come across and, and utilize. I really like the artwork here. Uh, I'm, I'm looking at the artwork here and I'm thinking this may be as good as it gets in the series, to be honest with you. I'm looking at, you know, the, the chamber with the lasers and, and then, you know, just the moodiness when as they're going through and they're confronted uh, by the by all the guys with the uh, the electro sticks, whatever they are. Right. You know, very, it's, it's like very it definitely creates like a real mood. It's It's got the science fiction futuristic look, but it's also almost, you know, like a little gothic. Well, the sticks are uh, pretty cool with all the crackle. And then we get then we get the chick who looks like Bethany Cabe right from from Iron Bethany Man Cabe or Black Widow yeah if you prefer yeah, a little bit of Black Widow also yeah well that going back to the the Kirby crackle and the glow stick things that they have that panel at the very top of page 15 looks very very burned to me mm. and I'm I'm trying to think of where I think it you know, what it reminds me of, and I don't know, it must be something from like X-Men or Fantastic Four or something, but it just... It, Maybe it Fire Lord with, uh, like, as a Galactus Herald? Yeah, possibly. Yeah, it it does, though. It gives me a serious burn vibe from, from yeah, like FF or something. Mm. But yeah, it's great. And yeah, you know, I, I tend to agree with you, Paul. This this may actually have the best art of this. I'm not sure. It's definitely up there. I mean, I, I really... Yeah, I mean, we haven't put them side by side to, you know, to truly rate them against each other. But I'm just looking through this, and I and I don't see any panels that I don't like. I, I don't see any point where the storytelling lags. I don't see any point where it's got that overly stylistic Klaus Janssen uh, look to it, where, where he's, he's dominated it too much. George Perez is coming through. Uh, but it still has the moodiness of the Jansen inks. I think this is one where they're really complementing each other as opposed to one of them dominating the other. Absolutely. And, and conversely, I'm noticing that all those little tells of it being, you know, like a young amateurish George Perez, like we saw with, like, say, the Manwolf stuff, that's gone at this point. This is Perez has come into his own. I mean, there, I, I don't see any of this where I look at it and go, ah, uh, you know, he's still a little greener, you know, learning his craft. I mean, here he's he's got it. I don't see any of this yeah. that I think is amateurish or or wonky. You know, there's no wonky anatomy. There's no overly wonky faces or anything like that, or wonky perspectives that we got a lot of with uh, with some of his earlier stuff that we, you know, earliest I should say stuff that we looked at before. Yeah, this this is great. Beautiful, beautiful art. I really like this. Now, I noticed here Kraft, the writer, uh, has moved things around. And he does this he, he does this through the whole adaptation in the narrative from, from where they happen in the film. And there's another example here where he's moved something around. And I, I kind of wonder if maybe it plays a little bit better. So in the film, Jessica confesses to Logan, you know, about setting him up and basically you know she was taking him to be killed just outside a cathedral after that runner was killed the the woman runner that francis shoots so essentially it would have happened between the you know the end of the last issue and where this one picks up but because of that narrative jump there there wasn't a scene in the cars where she does it in the film so she does it here when they get behind the scenes you know, after they leave the new you and now they're in this, you know, the background of the city. This is where she confesses to him and actually asks for his forgiveness and everything. And I kind of like that. I, I, I think it kind of works that, you know, it gives a little bit longer period of her maybe not being entirely sure of Logan but by this point, coupled with the fact that she's taking him behind the scenes, she's actually taking, you know, admitting him into the secret lair and then also confessing to him that basically asking for his forgiveness because she was setting him up to be killed. It extended that period of doubt that she had. But now you see that, you know, it's, it's kind of resolved at this point that she really does believe him and everything. I don't know. I, I kind of right. like it. I think it works a little bit better. What do you guys think? I, I wonder if... Uh... If Kraft changed it from the script, 
or if Kraft went along with the script and they changed it for the movie. Yeah, that could be too. Yeah. Cause, cause that's the one thing. And we've talked about it a couple of times as we've gone through these books is we, you know, we, we know that they don't always have the finished product in front of them while they're doing it. And so, you know, I don't know if they're being made simultaneously. I would imagine all the principal filming is done by the time they uh, start working on the comic book, but the editing process and, you know, I don't know how much special effects got added in post in, in the seventies, but you know, I, I think they were doing all the post filming work by the time this comic was being made. And maybe in the editing process, they decided to flip things around a little bit, or maybe even as they were filming it, they decided to change it. But Kraft only had the, uh, you know, the script in front of him. Right. I don't know that. I'm just you know, speculating that, that it could be either way, I guess. Right. But I, I agree with you that it does. The, the longer it goes, the better it is in its own way, because it makes, especially if you know she has her doubts as you're going along. That's what makes it you know, stronger. You know, you, you don't want you don't want the character to be won over too quickly. Right. Absolutely. Then, then, then to me, then it, it, you know, it smacks of plot convenience. Probably the, the biggest, at least for me personally, I think probably the biggest difference in this entire adaptation between the movie and this is, is a very subtle moment. But to me, it really jumps out because one of the big reasons I, I really like Logan's run is I, I think it's intelligent and I, I like thinking man's science fiction, something that sticks with you that makes you think about it a lot, you know, afterwards or as you rewatch it or that sort of thing. And I like that there's a lot of things in the movie that are left kind of ambiguous, you know, that you, you they're up to your personal interpretation of what you've seen and what you've heard, but they don't really necessarily come right out and say yes or no or, or whatever. They don't necessarily explain it. So in the movie, they, you know, Jessica takes him to the underground and as they're confronted with the people and they go through a whole kind of like little vetting process before they're admitted in and, and everything, there's a moment where Logan in the film, how I interpreted it, is he casually reaches down on the sly and he hits his, his transceiver, which sends out a call to the other Sandmen, and eventually they, they show up and there's this big massacre. Now, in the movie, there's there's nothing's ever explained about that. You'd never really find out, why did Logan do that? He just does it, and it has dire consequences for these rebels, you know, because they're, they're wiped out. And as I say, it's never explained, and, and he and Jessica never discuss it or anything. It just kind of happens, and then things keep going. But here in this adaptation, we do get an explanation, and it's on page 15, the second panel, as they're cornered, same way they are in the movie, they're cornered by the rebels, they've got their, their glow sticks and all that, and the, the narration box says, instinctively, automatically, Logan reacts as he's been taught at Sandman Academy. His hand stays well away from his gun and only brushes his transceiver casually in passing. So he does this, and it has the same effect. It calls the, the Sandman militia, essentially. They show up, and they massacre these people. But there's a little bit more to it in this adaptation, because for one, it seems like Kraft kind of sort of is explaining why he did it. it. It says he's doing it as, a, as an automatic reflex. He was trained to do this, so that's what he does. He doesn't really think about it. But then also, there's the moment later where... Uh, Bethany Cabe uh, realizes that he's done it and she's about to kill him for it when the Sandman show up and then she never gets the chance to fire. So there's a little bit more there. There's definitely an explanation for why he did it, but then there's also a little bit more of all, almost a ramification of having done it. And then even a little bit later than that, Jessica says, you know, she confronts Logan and says, you sent for them. And then she's mad because she, she thinks she's been duped, that he's still going along with the plan and everything, and he's trying to 
sputter out an explanation. No, you know, I was confused and, you know, this is what I was supposed to do, but, you know, I, I didn't, you know, I, I've changed and all that. So I'm just wondering, for one, which which version do you like better? But also, in the film, why do you why do you think he did it? Because to me, I, I like the beauty of it being vague. You you don't know why he did it, and and I've over the years I've gone back and forth on why he did it. Part of me goes along with this; it was just a reflex thing. But then there's there's kind of this thing that's always tickled the back of my mind, like was he really in, you know, was he really running or was, was he still thinking he's on his mission up to this point? And then something happens just past this, or maybe in this scene that does push him over to where he's like, no, I'm going to, I'm going to abandon my mission. I really am a runner now. And I've always kind of liked the beauty of that ambivalence. So I'm not sure which which I like better, honestly. I'm not sure if I like having the explanation that that he did it kind of almost like an accident, uh, you know, unthinking auto, automatic response, or not knowing. I always kind of thought that he was cemented as a runner, based on the fact that Francis was just relentless. You know that that he at this point he didn't have a choice. He was a runner because. He was being treated as a runner by not only a Sandman, but the the Sandman he was closest to in the world. Yeah, but was it he was uh, he was kind of programmed or given this mission by computer, right? If I remember correctly. right. Oh, the, but the computer like screwed screwed him over. Well, yes, but okay, he's been a Sandman his whole life, right? He's been trained his whole life, so it could be a little of both. Maybe he was in automatically from his training following that and then realized only after he had done it what he had done like not really an accident a reflex and then going oh shit what did i do it could be the act of a desperate man you know that's the only way i'm getting out of this so i'll bring in the sandman and then i'll see if i can find a way out then get my few years of life back or not even necessarily that just you know that's the only thing I can think of to get me out of this situation. I don't know how I'm going to get out of that situation either, but at least it gets me out of this one, and then I'll see what I come up with. Almost like the Indiana Jones way of thinking. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's brilliant. I never, I never even considered that that he he only did it to get himself out of out of that jam, knowing the Sandman would show up and would be maybe enough of a distraction that he'd be able to get out of that. Yeah. So yeah, he wasn't his way past the Sandman. Yeah. Not necessarily calling them out of any sense of loyalty, but out of a sense of almost desperation, like calling the cops. Yeah. I never even considered that. Yeah. That's think, think of like, like a, a, somebody who's doing something illegal, but then is being confronted by another, some other person who's, who's ready to kill him. Right. And they're willing to call the cops to get get rid of the person who's going to kill them, but knowing that the cops is going to create another dilemma that they're going to have to get out of. We're hoping that the cops and the, right. that the group and the cops would take each other out. Yeah, that too. But I do like the fact that, as you say, you know, it's a little ambivalent, and it uh, it, it it leaves it for you to decide. You know, what what was his motivation in doing that? Uh, you know, because because at this point, as you're watching the movie or even reading the comic. You want to believe that he's totally on board with Jessica now. But this is something where, you know, this is an act that wouldn't be on board with her. But on the other hand, you know, if he doesn't do it, what's going to happen to him? Right. I've often wondered if that scene is done that way in the film to maybe prolong the suspense or maybe even create a little bit of suspense of, you know, is he or isn't he, you know, with, with the viewing audience, because you're right. I mean, you, you want to root for him. At least I do, you know, I, it's, you know, I mean, the movie's named for him, but I mean, I do see him as the hero of the film. So I want to root for him. And I'm wondering if, you know, was this a conscious decision on the movie maker's part to maybe create a little bit of tension with the audience of, 
oh, wait, you know, is he on the up and up? Is is he is he really running or is he playing her? And I don't know that it really works that way, but I definitely and whenever that scene plays, when I watch the movie, I always stop to think about that for a moment. Like, why, why is he pushing that button? You know, it, it always it always creates that that you know, that uh, indecision in my mind of why I think he's doing it, because I, I always see it both ways. You see, I, I think it's a natural instinct as a viewer uh, for most of us. I mean, I'm sure there's exceptions to the rule, but I think it's a natural instinct for a viewer to want to root for the protagonist in the movie, television show, whatever it is they're watching. Uh, and I think it's a definitely a more recent development where they make that a hard choice. I mean, there were, there were things, even at this point, there were things like even the Godfather, you know, uh, Vito Corleone or Michael Corleone, or, you know, they're bad guys. Right. <laughs> they're out there doing things, killing people, but they put you in a position to root for them. Uh, so, so even before this, there were things like that. But I think it's much more commonplace now with things like Breaking Bad or... Uh, the Sopranos and, you know, you could probably come up with a bunch of stuff where the main character is not a good guy. Uh, and, and ultimately you're not supposed to be rooting for them, but I don't think that's the case here. I don't think, I don't think they want you to be confused as to whether or not to root for Logan. I think they want you to be rooting for him from the start. Right. So I, I, I think Kraft's explanation of instinct is probably where they wanted you to go, but maybe the filmmakers were, uh, you know, they, they were elegant enough to leave it up to your imagination in the way that they did it. Right. So that's, that's how I'm going with it right now. Yeah. I, you know, with most of the little things that, that craft did, you know, the little tweaks or the little, you know, explanations because he he did that a couple of times through the course of this adaptation where he maybe filled in some some blanks from the film for the most part i really like them because it helps flesh out the story it helps set motivations or explain plot holes or that sort of thing so i I really like that because as as i've said you know between the film and this i I feel like you kind of get the whole story the, the big picture when you've got both of these together to tell this story. Um, but this is, this is the one instant that I can think of at this moment with this adaptation where I, I'm not, you know, this is the one difference that I'm not sure I like better. You know, this is the one explanation that I, I'm not sure I am a hundred percent on board with. I, I, I have mixed feelings because I, I kind of like knowing why, but I also kind of like that feeling of, not knowing exactly what, because I think it does create some fun tension, you know, with, with the narrative, you know, with the story. But anyway, <laughs> what else you guys got? I, I'm sorry. I went on a long time about that, but I really like that moment. Yeah. That's, I don't have anything as, as thought provoking as that. Uh, just, you know, as I go through it, my, my biggest thing, you know, just, you, we talk about the differences between the uh, comic and the uh, movie. And my biggest thing is, at the end, when we get to box, he looks so impressive, As I, am I not? You know, he, he looks, that's what he looks. And so much better than he does in the movie. Yeah. Mm, yeah. You know, the, the special effects at the time this movie was made and, you know, on the budget they were on, you know, it's, it's clearly a man in a, uh, you know, in, in a box costume, uh, literally a box uh, What's in the box? <laughs> Ros- what was it? Roscoe Brown? Is Ros- that his name? Roscoe, yeah, I think it is. Yeah, Roscoe Lee Brown. That's his name, yeah. That's what's in the box. <laughs> that's that's what's in the box. <laughs> but, you know, he, here he looks truly robotic and threatening. And And they don't, you know, they don't try and give you the whole perspective of, oh, maybe he's benevolent. It's just, you know, I hope your stay is enjoyable because it will be permanent. Right. Yeah. He's menacing right from the get go. Whereas in the movie, it, it takes I mean, it's really not until, you know, just before Logan takes him out, essentially, that you realize, oh, he's bad. This. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This being you know presented in this very comic book way 
he, he almost he, he's almost like a, a Doctor Doom esque vis, visage, you know. Ah, it's more like Destro. Come on, or Destro, yeah. But yeah, I mean, just the way he's presented here, it, it's menacing right from the get go, and I, I I do like that better. But I love I love Box. It's hard for me to say anything critical about Box in the movie, but I mean, if I'm honest with myself, yeah, he's he's pretty janky by today's standards. But this, I mean, he looks great, and I, you know, I, I'm always I, I'm always so surprised when I look at stuff like this, you know, back at this time with this printing process with a limited color palette, where somebody could do such an amazing job with you know just a few colors and and really present this as being you know gleaming metallic as he looks here i mean it look it just looks fantastic and it's just really it's just simple tricks of the light and uh and the coloring but it it looks great yeah it does yeah you know i i think you might be onto something paul i think this may just be uh this may just be, you know, illustration-wise, this might be the best issue of the of the adaptation, because it. Does, I mean, there's so many panels, and I mean, page 17 alone. You know, you were talking about, you know, just how great the art was and how everything works. I mean, that that page, page 17, is one of my favorite pages of the entire adaptation. You get several different layout designs you know panel designs you get several different perspectives and uh it's i mean i I love everything i love the inking the coloring is fantastic and it's brutal and just just the layout too i I love the 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 juxtaposition between the first and second panel yeah i love the shot of the uh the sandman pouring through the opening that they've blasted in the wall that is great yeah with the the you know, comment the Sandman are here. You know, it's 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 being it's being narrated in a word balloon, right? Which I, I like that touch also. It's just you know it it's it it makes for a dramatic moment or a dramatic entrance for them, and it's drawn dramatically. Like you know, you can almost hear the swelling symphony music playing in the background, right? And. One of the things I like about it, just kind of taking it another step further, is it's they're coming in as if they're the cavalry to the rescue, and yet they're not. Right. So that's that's another aspect of it that I think is kind of cool. I love the way the uh, the I, I'm not sure what they're supposed to. I guess they're supposed to be laser blasts. I'm not sure, but I, I just love the way they're they're shown here. Because this is how they would be illustrated later uh, in the Star Wars series too, you know, with that little like muzzle flash burst type of thing, and then you know the actual laser beam or laser bolt, whatever it's supposed to be shooting out of it. I, I just love that. It looks so cool. A little bit of Kirby crackle in there. It's 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 just beautiful. Yeah, and it almost has like a, a laser and yet lightsaber kind of thing going with it. Right. Yeah. Yeah, very much so. But then, like, when Logan is shooting it on page 22, it almost looks like he's got it on wide beam, much less focused. But but I like I like the effect there where they have just a little bit, not much, but a little bit of Kirby crackle where it's coming out of the gun. But it's enough of a burst that you can't even see the gun. Right. All you see is the, the blast coming. Right. Yeah, and when it hits the when it hits the Sandman, he's, he's shooting. I mean, it's just a big old blast hitting that guy and a lot of Kirby crackle on that one. It is. It's great. I love the way this is laid out. I really like the sequence. Bottom of page twenty. Is it twenty-six? Yeah, page twenty-six. With Francis. With Francis. That perspective shot where he's holding up the onk, but we're looking straight at him as he's looking at the onk. I just there's something about that perspective shot I really really like. That is very cool. This, this this entire page is beautiful. Look at the the layout of the of the whole area. You know, you, you have the, the the biggest panel, which is showing uh, Jessica and, and Logan very small at the bottom, with all sorts of uh, inset, you know, machinery and and stairs and 
walkways and different things all over the place. You know, it's all very, very hyper detailed. And then you have two insets in it, well, you know, one of which is also them small from a different perspective. But then you have a close up of Jessica in there as well. It almost feels again, it almost feels like it has a little bit of a cinematic layout to it where you could almost feel the shot, the cuts, uh, you know, the perspective cuts. Right. Which a lot a lot of artists, you know, it, it is a uh, I think an unappreciated skill that a lot of artists don't you know, they don't have the vision to put together a sequence like that where it where it has a, you know, kind of a, a visual sense to it, a, a flow. And this one does. And George Perez, you know, clearly is one of the great artists of our time. So it's not not really surprising that he should have that skill. But I think a lot of people don't realize how little some other artists have it in comparison. You know, this this is, you know, something where, uh, you know, it's it's it says it's storytelling where, you know, as we've talked about in the past, it's almost like you don't need to read the word balloons to kind of have a feel for everything that's going on. And the word balloons just add to it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. This this is comics at its best when. Yeah, there's there's not a lot. I mean, there are narration box, but there, there's not a lot of them. And I like that because it's. I, I this is the way I feel like comics should be to where the story is told through the visuals and the dialogue, for the most part, plays along with it, tells the story, keeps the narrative moving. And then the narration boxes, I like narration boxes, don't get me wrong, I, I miss them in modern comics. I, I think not having them at all is kind of a crime. But I like that he uses, in craft, the writer, uses them sparingly rather than using them as a crutch. Because that's the other extreme that you can go to with old, you know, old school style comic books is we've seen it a million times in the books that we've covered on this show where I think we've even commented on it before that you don't have to tell me I'm seeing it happen. And I think a lot of the comic writers were doing that because they were paired with artists that maybe didn't have those skills where they could make the natural flows and, and keep the storytelling in, a, in an intelligent way that where you knew what was happening here. Clearly craft sees and, and respects that Perez this guy's a master. He's able to tell the story and keep the narrative moving, and you can follow it without having to have your hand held through the narration boxes. And I like that. So it's it's really a nice marriage of the two styles. I mean, I, I'm I'm assuming that's that's craft realizing that because these guys had worked together before, and you know from what I've what I've read. You know, of this whole uh, collaboration and everything, you know, he he was thrilled to be working with Perez again for those reasons. You know, he knew he was working with somebody that, you know, was really going to do you know, a class job like this, and he does. It's it's really great. Well, as far as my notes go, I think that's pretty much it. This is this is one of those for me that's just easy to get sucked into, you know, reading it and rereading it and uh, and forget to take a lot of notes kind of thing. Cause I just, I, I'm, you know, I just get so caught up in it, but it's great. This is a really, really good issue. Yeah. I, uh, you know, we talk, we talk about rating them. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm definitely going a on the story and artwork. I'm just trying to decide if the, where, where I put the cover. I think the cover is, is, is very good. I don't know if it's quite an a, so I'm going to say a B plus on the cover because it is very good. It's it's definitely compelling and it makes you want to pick it up. Uh, and I'll give the book overall an A, but I'm just going to say B plus on the cover. This used to be, believe it or not, this used to be my least favorite cover of the adaptation. But I don't know. Somewhere along the line, I've I've changed my opinion of it. I like it a lot better than I used to. There's something about it I just used to really dislike, and I, I can't now tell you exactly what it was. I guess just because it is very different from from the film in, in certain aspects, but it's also very dynamic. I, I really do like this cover now. So I, I I'm I think I'm right with you. I think I'd go a B plus, not quite an A, but it is really good. I think part of it too is the black. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I think else pop out. It, it does. Yeah, I think the, the the red lasers against the black background really do pop. 
Yeah. So the Doc's outfit's yeah, like chainmail or something on the cover. It looks like. Yeah. It's like it looks like <laughs> yeah. a style of chainmail. But yeah, interior on this. I mean, the art is is definitely up there. Uh, it's an A. Story wise, uh, yeah, I think I'd go in. I mean, it's an overall A book, bordering on an A plus for me. I mean, it's it's really really great. I mean, honestly, I don't think comics get a whole lot better than this. Uh, I think I'd give it an A because I got to get Alvin out of the garage. Oh. <laughs> he's a for jumping Alvin. up on the door. So, uh, yeah, the cover. I like the bandit. Get the big muzzle flash, the Star Wars muzzle flash with the gun on the cover, too. Yeah. Uh, what is he? He looks like he's going to beat him with a stick, though. He's got all these lasers, but he's going to club them. What if he has a pointed stick? A pointed <laughs> stick? I will give the cover. Let's get a cat fight in the background. Ow. I will give the cover a, a C for cat fight. No, I'll give it an I give it an A. And the interior, lovely George Perez. See a lot of uh, a lot of familiarity here. The good old days for Mr. Perez. So I will give it an A. And the story, you know, today. I mean, we're following the movie at, at, at adaptation with you know with some changes, but I think the changes always make the adaptations a little more interesting. Or you, you, know, you, you get to the same place, but you just take a different path. Usually. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. So right, hey, so, for box. So 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 you got a lot of A's, <laughs> and we got B, B for box, and uh, that'll be it for issue number three. Sweet. We'll be back with issue number four at some point. Goodbye, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll continue to join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at bins at twotruefreaks.com or by joining the Back to the Bins group on Facebook. Back to the Bins is a proud affiliate of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is a registered trademark of DiManzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Please take a moment to stop by the twotruefreaks.com site and check out their many other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>